Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Easter According to the Gospel of John. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 26 to 31, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, That You Might Believe. There are, you should know, many different kinds of believing. You know, one of my favorite passages in the Bible that speaks quite plainly to this issue, well, it's in James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So there are all sorts of varieties of believing. Some involve a simple acceptance of facts, facts that require no change in the one who believes. I believe, for instance, that the scientists are right when they downgraded what used to be called a planet, that is Pluto, to now a dwarf planet. I mean, that kind of a believer in the scientific evidence of a planet, of which I'm a believer, I mean, it requires nothing in me. When scientists first made the case for that, I had read it with some interest, and I said something like, well, look at that. And then my life went on just as it had before. Nothing changed for me outside of the fact I had come to believe that Pluto was a dwarf planet. And there are people, when it comes to believing, that actually think about God in that same way. I believe that God exists. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that the Bible is true. And what I'm saying is there's a kind of believing that allows for an acquiescence of all the facts and treats them no differently from what someone might believe about the planet Pluto. That is to say, in actual fact, very little changes in their lives or in their worldview. One more truth is added, and that's simply it. But there are other kinds of believing. A second kind of believing is a belief structure that does change the way we live and think, but it's not supreme in our lives. So let me unpack that. I believe in the joy of riding a motorcycle. So if you ask me, you know, if the weather were always nice, would I own an automobile? And I would say, not a chance. You might disagree with me on that, but I believe that motorcycle travel is the preferred means of travel. Now, when I say that, I'm not in the least bit bothered. If you disagree with me, I mean, why should I? That's my hobby, and it might not be yours. We can still be friends. Again, there are people who view belief in Jesus in precisely that way. That's to say, they do believe in the gospel, in Jesus, in going to church, adopting the Christian lifestyle, but they view it not from the perspective of truth, but from the perspective of personal choice. As one man said to me, you know, even if the Christian faith weren't true, I'd still choose to be a Christian. After all, I found such joy and meaning in it. You know, if on the other hand, you feel differently, well, it's a free world, do what you want. And by the way, there are a great many people who feel exactly that way about their belief in God and in Christ. It's personal to them, and that's where the matter begins, and that's where it ends. But there's still other ways of believing. I mean, we could speak about believing, you know, that rightly assumes a truth, and yet there are loves and enjoyment in their lives that they would not give up in order to fully embrace that truth. They believe, and yet at the same time, they continue to live at variance with the truth. And of course, then there's the kind of believing which eclipses everything else on the horizon. For this truth, I would gladly forgo every earthly love. I would pick up my cross and follow Jesus regardless of the cost. That's believing. 
So if you listened to me yesterday, I began to trace the story of Thomas, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And by this time, Judas has hanged himself and there are only 11 remaining. But the 10 meet because of remarkable events. Peter and John have been to the tomb of Jesus. They found it empty. The women have reported they have seen Jesus alive. And now as they meet to discuss it, Jesus stands among them. It's now eight days later and they're meeting again. All the while, Thomas has said he would not believe unless he sees Jesus himself and places his finger in the nail holes in his hands and into the side where the lance was driven while Jesus hung on the cross. So let's reread our text, and that's John 20, 26 to 29. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, yesterday I dealt with the matter of requiring evidence in order to believe. So is that a problem? And I said then, no, it's not. Thomas' problem was really not that he lacked evidence. His problem lay in the fact that he was given to despondency. He simply refused to grasp genuine hope when it was presented to him. He should have asked himself a series of questions. Were the other disciples given to fabrication and to lies? What's the explanation for the empty tomb? What about the testimony of the women? How about the testimony of Jesus himself before he was crucified? How about the miracles and the teaching of Jesus? And how about Isaiah 53, verse 8, where we are told the Messiah is going to be cut off from the land of the living? And then verse 9, that he would be laid in a rich man's grave. And in verse 10, that the Messiah would then see the light of life. I mean, Thomas had so much evidence that should already have convinced him. I said then that it's never a problem to ask for evidence for the truth of the faith in order to believe. But there is a problem with the man or the woman whose inner attitude simply will not believe. And that was Thomas. And so now Jesus himself approaches him. But because I don't want to repeat what I said yesterday, notice now, once confronted with the living Jesus, Thomas responds. His words are, my Lord and my God. So let's examine that part of believing. I start with a point that if Jesus is truly raised from the dead, the implications, even the conclusion that Thomas reached, should be our conclusion as well. I'm always amazed at how often I hear a supposed believer say to me, look, I don't believe that Jesus is God. You know, I've heard this now so frequently that we really have to deal with that matter. I mean, after all, Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God. You know, to this person who claims they believe, I ask this question. Do you remember the incident recorded in Matthew 8? Jesus asleep in the boat. He spent the day preaching and he's dead tired. A wind whips up. Waves are now crashing over the bow. And Jesus is still asleep and he's completely exhausted. And they wake him. Look, we're drowning, they say. And then, just like any mortal man, he wipes the sleep from his eyes. He steadies himself. He raises his arm and he commands nature to obey him. And it does. And the disciples say, what manner of man is this? So let's ask that question. What kind of a man is this? What kind of a man instructs nature and it obeys his voice? What kind of a man heals the sick and raises the dead? 
what kind of a man orders demons and they flee from him in terror? Indeed, that's the foundational question of the Christian faith. The first and obvious question must always be, who is Jesus? So now listen, not just to Thomas, but listen to the others who also saw Jesus raised from the dead. John, the writer of John, begins his book with the words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, close to the end, it records one of the disciples, Thomas, acknowledging what John told us at the beginning of his book. Jesus is not only with God, he is God. Or consider what Peter would later say in 2 Peter 1 verse 1, where he would write, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or listen to the Apostle Paul, Titus 2, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, how does that make sense? Well, it only makes sense when you acknowledge that there is one God who exists as a trinity, one God who eternally exists as three separate persons. So here's what the Bible plainly teaches. You haven't really become a believer until you can fall at the feet of Jesus and call him Lord and God. You can say, I love him. You can say, I'm following him and trying to do what he says. You can say, I'm even learning to trust him. But until you say, my Lord and my God, you have never truly believed in him. So I'm inviting you to worship Jesus, your God. He's fully equal both with the Father and with the Spirit. He shares fully in the essence of God. And so the first response to Jesus must be the response that Thomas exhibited. He says, my Lord and my God. See, in this way, we acknowledge that to call him a great moral teacher sent from God, but to refuse to call him God is a blasphemy. For what we have in Jesus is incarnation. God has come to us clothed in human flesh. That is the one true faith. It is to say, my Lord, my God. Hi, it's Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know that there are times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John. But also take the opportunity to learn how to subscribe for our ministry podcasts, the YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is as widely available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. As we follow through our text, we come now to verse 29. Thomas has confessed Jesus as Lord and God, and now Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, 
Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. However we understand Jesus' words, we know that Jesus does not mean, blessed are you who have no evidence, but you still believe. Rather, in these words, Jesus now speaks beyond Thomas and beyond the disciples who are in the room. He's speaking directly to us who were not in that room, who did not see Jesus raised from the dead. But for those of us who didn't see the resurrection, we are not without evidence. For Jesus was crucified for our sins. He did die on that cross. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. He rose from the dead. He presented himself alive. For all of us who were not in the upper room, or for that matter, for all of us who were not among the 500 who all saw the raised Jesus at the same time, Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. Jesus says, blessed are those who are not among that group, and yet you have seen the evidence and you have believed. Now, when we believe, says Jesus, we are blessed. And what Jesus is saying here is not blessed are those who have no evidence and yet believe. Rather, he's saying blessed are those who have said with Thomas, my Lord and my God, even though you weren't in the upper room. Blessed means favored. It means privileged. It means privileged are those who have believed. You see, faith is attended with blessedness. 375 times in the Old Testament, 100 times in the New Testament, the Bible speaks of blessing. And when it does, it does so with a sense of, well, congratulations. If others knew what you had, they'd envy you. You're favored. How happy and how joyful you are. And when we begin to take into account what we have in faith, it should stagger us. I'm forgiven. I'm loved by God. I'm promised eternity. I have hope as an anchor for my soul. I have meaning. I have purpose. All things work together for my good. God is for me. Who can be against me? Congratulations! How full of joy you must be. We need to revel in that. Now let's come to the theme of the book of John, and it's found in the next two verses. Having told the story of Thomas, John now stops and says, do you realize why I've written this entire book? John 20, 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, John begins by telling us that the gospel of John is not an exhaustive book. Well, we already knew that, didn't we? I mean, we know that because when we study the three Gospels that were written before John wrote the book of John, that is when we study Matthew, Mark, and Luke, well, we're aware that they mentioned things that John didn't mention. But I think John says more than that. He wants to say that Jesus did more than was written in all four Gospels. And the reason I know that is because when we get to the last sentence of the book of John, John 21, 25, John says that the life of Jesus was so full that the sum total of all books that were written could not contain everything that he did. And then John adds that Jesus did other signs that are not written in this book. Now, if you know the book of John well, you know that John is a book of signs. Now, we might think of a sign simply as a miracle, but by calling miracles signs, John wants to communicate something very specific about the miracles he records. See, a sign is a marker, and it points us to another reality. Imagine for a moment packing up your family in the car, and you're driving to the Grand Canyon, and you come to a sign, and it says, Grand Canyon, 150 miles. 
So you stop the car and you get the kids and the dog out. You take a picture of everyone standing next to the sign. You get back in your car and you drive home. Well, that would never happen. A sign is meant to point you to a reality. And the reality is Thomas falling at the feet of Jesus and calling him Lord and God. The signs are meant to lead you to that point. And for those of us who know the book of John well, we know that John records seven signs. You know, first, Jesus changed water into wine. That's in John 2. Second, he heals the official son at a distance by simply saying that he would be healed. That's in chapter 4. Third, in chapter 5, he healed the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Fourth, in chapter 6, he fed the 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish. Fifth, in chapter 6, he walks on water as if to say, that's not difficult. And sixth, in chapter nine, he heals the man who was born blind, a feat that was demonstrated before a large crowd. And finally, seventh, chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, consider those seven signs, says John, and then also consider what reality they point to. You know, for the discerning reader of John, we might also ask, are there not more signs? I mean, what about his ride into Jerusalem? What did that mean? What did that point to? What does his crucifixion mean? What does the resurrection mean? How does one simply admire the signs and not see what the signs point to? Is he not Lord and God? Now, let's see again what John writes. He says, the signs that I have presented in this book have been written for two important reasons. Let's consider each one. Now, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ or that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, that he is the Son of God. So stop with the word believe, because that's what we've been focusing on. You see, John's gospel is a gospel of believing, a gospel of faith. And as we've seen, there is believing and then there's believing. I mean, go all the way back to John 2, 23 to 25. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, some believe, but what did they believe? Well, they believed that he had the power to do miracles. They believed that he had the power and the willingness to heal them. Some may have even believed that he might just be the long-awaited Messiah, but unlike Thomas, they would never fall at his feet and worship him and totally surrender to him, calling him their Lord and their God. I mean, that kind of believing was far too inconvenient for them. But, says John, that's what I'm trying to lead you to when you read this book, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah that Scripture speaks about that he's the hope of the world who has come to forgive sins. He has come to defeat evil. He's come to establish the kingdom of God, but also that you might believe that he's the son of God or that he's God the son. I need to add something here that's not readily seen in the English text. You know, the Greek grammar leads us to translate this phrase in one of two different ways. John might be saying that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is, that believing is an ongoing act, that believing continues to hold faith in Jesus for a lifetime. Well, the second possibility of the way in which, you know, this verse could be translated is this way, that you may decisively believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if we translate it that way, it means that we might believe in such a way that we're transformed. Or as John 1.12 says, that we might be made into the children of God. 
But for my part, I don't think we have to choose between those two options. We are to definitively believe, and we are to continue to believe. Now to the second half of the equation. In consequence of believing, says John, we have life in his name. The life that John speaks about is the life that's mentioned over and over again in his book. It's called eternal life. Eternal life, first of all, is eternal. That is, it never ends. Since it comes from the resurrection of Jesus, it's deathless life. But it's also a quality of life. It's the life of God. It's the life of the Son of God. It's life lived with Jesus at the center. It's life that lives in Jesus, in which all that is in Jesus is given to us who are his children. That's why this kind of believing simply can't be a mental assent or a believing in the facts. The kind of believing that John is speaking about is the kind of believing that casts our entire life onto Jesus so that we now live our lives in him. It's to trust in him unto the uttermost. It is to surrender to him and his lordship. It is to give our lives unreservedly to him and to say, I trust you with my life, I believe. That's what the resurrection of Jesus does. It imparts life. It infuses us with the very life that comes from the resurrection. It's the life that's lived in Christ. It's the life that falls at the feet of Jesus as Thomas did and confesses the wonderful truth, my Lord and my God. Thanks, John. Uh, Just a quick question. Is it possible for people to have some kind of believing which they're not saved? Yeah, I think, um, I want to say this, and gently, carefully, but I do believe that uh, churches are filled with people who are, in fact, believing in some sense, but are not saved. And I say that, first of all, because James tells us that even the devil believes, and yet, of course, he's not saved. Um, So he believes the truths of the gospel. He knows they're true, but, of course, he's a rebel. And uh, can we be that? Of course, we can be that. Uh, But also, there is this, we need to confess our own sins. We need to believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, so there are facts that, of course, we need to believe. But we also need this act of surrender, our lives surrender to Christ. We ask him to come and uh, fill us with his Holy Spirit and to give us a new heart. I mean, all of these things are necessary, and that's what's truly believing. It lays down our lives in submission to Christ. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Easter, according to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. As cherished children of God, we all share the great commission to spread the gospel across the globe. This is no simple command, but if we partner with each other, we stand a much greater chance of enriching the lives of many with the good news of Jesus Christ. This month to commemorate the importance of this partnership, Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating our monthly partners who bless this ministry with their consistent gifts. Thank you so much for your continued support. Our Bible teaching and engagement resources simply cannot exist without it. By donating monthly, you join our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and gain access to all its unique benefits. 
To find out more about these exclusive benefits or to become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.